It's good to be back here in Charlotte. Uh, my wife and I were gone for about two weeks to the, the UK. We had a conference that we conducted with uh, <clears throat> Mr. King in Wales for several days. Uh, we were blessed with some very beautiful weather, but uh, my wife had not had the opportunity to travel over there a whole lot, but she got the full experience of the three or four showers in one day, uh, as well as the sunshine and, and the wonderful narrow roads <laughs> that she kept jumping as we were going around corners. But I could feel for her because I rode with Mr. King <laughs> on a previous trip, and I kept lifting up my foot <laughs> and drawing in my elbow <laughs> as you... Squeezed between the car and a rock ledge over here. Uh, but it was a very interesting trip. Had some very positive visits. <clears throat> the conference in Wales went well. I was in uh, Missouri and Arkansas last weekend. We had a, a regional conference there. Had about 200 people for the Sabbath uh, in the Joplin, Missouri area. And then had about 100 people for the conference, which went very well. Looking forward to next week when the travel stops. <laughs> And we can get back to a more normal life. <clears throat> now, brethren, we live in a very interesting world today. Uh, religion has become a factor in world events. I think we sense this, or I have sensed it more in the UK than over here, this, this dynamic of the, the conflict between the religious and the non-religious. Uh, you know, over there, there are several prominent atheist college professors who have been writing books about God is unnecessary and, and to believe in God is silly. Uh, someone's uh, posted on the Internet some signs that they saw in front of churches in the U.K. And the, the signs kind of reflect this, this conflict. One sign said, Happy Easter to our Christian friends. Happy Passover to our Jewish friends. And to our atheist friends, good luck. <laughs> you know, a little dig at uh, some of these people. What we're also seeing is, is really a decline in religion, decline in religious participation. Many people are just turned off, again, because of some of the things happening in religion. They don't feel close to God today. Another sign said, as you pass this little church, be sure to plan a visit. So when at last you're carried in, God won't ask, who is it? You know, because some people just don't go to church. They're not really interested that way. They've been turned off. I want to address a subject today in the sermon that relates to some of these light-hearted comments that I just made. But you're familiar, I think, with the scripture in Matthew 5:48, where Jesus said, become perfect. Be you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, many people dismiss that with the comment that, well, you know, nobody's perfect. I can't be perfect. You can't be perfect. You know, only God is perfect. So they kind of move beyond that scripture. And yet Jesus said it. It's inspired in the scriptures. It says, be perfect. The word in the Greek is teleos, which means complete. Strive to be complete. Strive to be spiritually mature, where you see the big picture. You put it all together. Uh, it can also be translated, strive to be full-grown in a spiritual sense. Uh, some translations say, be blameless. Strive to be blameless, as your Father in heaven is. But how do we do this? 
How do we become perfect in that sense? What is involved in becoming perfect? You know, some people say, well, you can't be perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yet Jesus instructed us to do that, and that is not a mission impossible. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. It's not a mission impossible. The Bible actually gives clues of how to become perfect. Uh, That is, incidentally, not the title of the sermon, but we're going to be working towards that. The Bible gives clues how to become perfect, how to grow. In fact, becoming perfect, drawing closer to God, is not a challenge, and it's not a mission that's limited to adults. Children can do some of these things. One of the clues to becoming perfect We go back to Genesis chapter 17, what God said to Abraham when he was working with Abraham to become the father of the faithful. <clears throat> In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, said when Abram was 99 years old, now God had been working with Abraham for almost a quarter of a century before he said this, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me, and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I'll multiply you exceedingly. One of the keys, because Jesus picked up on this statement when he mentioned in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect. The key here in Genesis is walk before me. Walk before me and become perfect. And it's not only adults that can walk before God and set a goal of becoming perfect, but children can do that too. A desire to walk before God, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. But how do you walk with God? And this is really the title of my sermon, Walking with God. How do we, how do we walk with God? What is involved whenever we strive to walk with God? Because if we're walking with God, we will eventually become perfect or completely spiritually complete, spiritually mature if we do these things. Dr. Meredith touched on this in the final lecture in our Council of Elders meeting, talking about walking with God. And I wanted to merely expand the subject a little bit here and talk a little bit more about it. I remember reading a book when I first came into the church. It was entitled, They Walked with God. And it was uh, little biographies of Catholic saints and just talking about their lives. It's interesting as you read about some of them, one particular individual, I forget the exact one, but I think he'd read a scripture in the New Testament talking about some make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. And he mutilated himself. He was very sincere, obviously. But he felt that was what was involved in walking with God. We did a field trip one year at the feast in Ireland up to a little town called Glendalough or Glendalock, depending on how you pronounce it. But there was a monastic settlement up there. I think it was a St. Kevin or someone who settled the, uh, uh, made the settlement. And he was noted for standing for hours in the cold water up there with his arms outstretched. And the legends were that birds would land on his arms. But the reason he was doing this, standing in this cold water, was to show God how much he could you know, endure. Because uh, as we walked around in Ireland over there last week, it was cold. 
they don't swim over there very much because the water is cold. And yet this was this concept of some people that they had, you know, standing around in water, punishing yourselves, going off. You know, the Bible talks about in Second Corinthians to come out of this world and be separate. So they would literally come out of this world and dwell totally by themselves. But this was their concept of walking with God. What I'd like to do today in the sermon is look at some scriptural instructions. What does the Bible tell us to do if we want to walk with God? You know, this theme, walking with God, literally runs through the scriptures. Let me just give you several. You don't have to look them up now, but I would encourage you to look them up later. Because it's a theme that runs through the scriptures. In Exodus chapter 18, verses 17 through 20, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was giving him advice. He said, listen to me. He said, part of your job is going to be teaching the people to walk with God. Part of your job is going to be teaching the people to walk with God. I remember Dr. Meredith used to give us a forum and an assembly at Ambassador College years ago where he would kind of tell the students, you know, you need to pray and you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do that. He's not trying to live their lives for them. He was trying to map out a path. Here's the path that you follow if you want to walk with God. But it's mentioned in Exodus 18. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Because Deuteronomy, Moses was giving instructions to the second generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. The first generation, they were given instructions and they turned away from God, had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So in, in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking to the second generation that had been born in the wilderness, had seen what happened to their parents, and now he's giving them instructions. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, it says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments. This is God speaking, basically. I, I wish they did have a heart in them, that they would fear me, and keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them, that it might go well with them and with their children forever. So this is what God as a father is concerned about. You know, do it right, do it the right way, and things will go well for you. You're welcome to bang your head against the wall and do all these other things. I want to do it my way. And... Uh, There'll be consequences. There'll be difficulties. Sometimes we can learn that way. Sometimes that's the only way we learn, unfortunately. But this was part of Moses' job. Go and return to them, or go and say to them, return to your tents, but as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments and statutes and the judgments which you, may, which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess." Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you or may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. 
This was Moses' job to teach the Israelite, here is the path that leads to a long, abundant, fulfilling life. That was his job. It's going to be our job. There are benefits that come, as God says here, that it may be well with you if you simply do it the way that I've instructed you to do it. Go to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, very quickly. Is illustrating the <clears throat> the fact that this theme of walking with God runs through the scriptures. In Psalm 1, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man, or blessed is the person who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. They don't listen to people that have jumped the tracks, nor stands in the path of sinners. Sinners transgress the laws of God, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Mr. Tyler was talking about the benefits of doing things God's way. You know, there's a scripture in Ecclesiastes 9.10. It says, whatever you do, do with your might. And the advice that Mr. Tyler gave this man, have the cleanest floor (laughs) anywhere around. And these things stand out. These things stand out. If you do a good job and do the best job that you can wherever it is, that is going to be noticed. We had a a deacon in one of the churches I pastored up in New England. He was a steel worker, built the the steel framework of of, of buildings. And he he tried to retire three times. And they kept calling him back to work. He said, these young guys don't want to work. He says, they call in Thursday sick. And then they take Friday off and call in Monday that they're, they're, they might be back Tuesday or Wednesday. <laughs> and he says they work a couple of days a week. He says they can't get anything done, so they keep calling us old guys <laughs> back to work because he worked, and he really worked hard. You know, so following principles like that that are found in the Scriptures have incredible benefits. Let's jump to the New Testament quickly in John <clears throat> John chapter 12, instructions of Jesus Christ, verse 35. And again, I'm breaking in in the middle of the thought here. In verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer and the light is with you. He's talking about himself. Walk while you have the light. In other words, listen to my instructions, follow my teachings, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. You know, and we reject the teachings of Jesus Christ, and we're basically on our own. And we're going to wind up getting lost sooner or later. Paul mentions in Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, when we're called to become a Christian, to walk in newness of life. He's talking primarily to Gentiles in Rome. And when they were called out of a pagan society, they were literally beginning to walk in a different direction. You know, when you came in contact with the church of God and the truth of God, your life changed. And people noticed. <laughs> they thought you were crazy. But you were merely following what the, you know, what the scriptures actually say. And in Philippians chapter 3, <clears throat> Paul makes a number of interesting comments. Again, illustrating this theme that walking with God literally runs through the scriptures, through the Old Testament and through the New Testament. This idea of of becoming perfect or growing in spiritual maturity is what Paul's talking about here. 
beginning in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. In other words, Paul says, I've got a long ways to go. But I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I don't have it made. You know, I don't have a, a shoe into the kingdom of God. But one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, letting go of the past. You know, some people feel, well, I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect. I can't keep the past over till I'm perfect. And No, we need to let go of the past. We repent of that. We change. And then we focus on what is coming up ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let as many of us as are mature have this mind. And if anything, if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. In other words, live by the same guidelines and let us be of the same mind. Now, we're all not going to think the same way. But we ought to be in harmony together, where we're pointing in the same direction and following the same path. You know, there are not many roads to heaven, even though many people are being told that today. Final scripture I wanted to notice was in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Again, illustrating this theme of walking with God is literally uh, permeates the scriptures. First John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We'll come back to some of the earlier verses in a little bit. Whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. In other words, we're going to be reaching spiritual maturity as we love the words of God and begin to live by them. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. It was we should be walking just as Jesus Christ walked. And we've got to find out how did Jesus Christ walk? What did he do? What did he teach? You know, we're talking about the importance of, uh, of taking care of our health in the uh, council meeting this past week. And we're talking about the importance of exercise, the importance of diet, uh, the importance of just eating balanced foods and not overloading on this, that, or the other thing. Uh, we've got an article in Tomorrow's World, May, June 2009, on biblical principles of health. It's mentioned there, and Dr. Meredith mentioned this also in his comments, that you know, Jesus Christ walked hundreds of miles a year. He made at least three trips up to Jerusalem for the Holy Days, about 75 miles one way or so. So maybe 150 miles. He was physically active. I think that's the important thing. We have got to be physically active because God has made our bodies to need that. And if we're not physically active and we're eating a fair amount, then calories add up and uh, we look like. <laughs> but then there are consequences from that. Our joints wear out. We wind up with diabetes. We wind up with other things. There are things that we can do to take care of the temple that God has given us. And this is part of our responsibility. But physical exercise is part of that. So what can we do to walk as Jesus Christ walked? Why did he walk the way he did? Why did he teach what he did? Again, we want to become perfect. We want to become spiritually mature. How do we do that? Well, let's talk about what is involved. I've got five points here I want to mention. Five points of walking with God 
I was talking with someone else some time ago and said, how do you develop a relationship with God? What do you do to draw closer to God? And we'll talk about these things because it involves walking with God, developing a close relationship with God. And it's not just adults that can do these things. You can do this as a young child and begin working towards something. The first thing I want to mention is to seek God. To seek God. You know, Paul mentions in Romans uh, chapter 3, let's turn there for just a minute. He's describing the society in which he lived. He was living in the Roman Empire, kind of at the height of its power. Uh, but he's actually quoting from the Psalms. And David noticed certain things even in his day. In Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> Paul makes this comment again. He's quoting the Psalms. He says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Now, we're living in a society today. America has more people probably in church every Sunday than any other country in the world. But we don't have the people in church that used to be there. England, some of the European countries, less than 10% of the population goes to church on Sunday. Less than 10%, meaning 90% of the people are not in church. And the number of people that claim they don't believe in God, they're not religious, has been climbing over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And these books that people write about that God is unnecessary and is silly to believe in God, this does have an impact on people and is having an impact on people. There's an article appeared in Dallas uh, paper here recently with some figures. Uh, researchers at Trinity College, Hartford, Connecticut, poll of 54,000 American adults. Some of the highlights. The number of people who call themselves Christians is about 76% in America, down 10 points since 1990. It was used to be 86%. Now it's only 76%. This is dropping. It's even worse than that when you get outside the United States. 30% of married couples do not have a religious ceremony. They don't pray. They don't go to church. That's 30% of our population. Better than one in four Americans do not expect a religious funeral. Don't bother with it. And yet, baptisms and funerals were one of the two times that many people go to church, maybe besides Christmas and Easter. In 1990, 8.2% of Americans uh, said uh, none when they were asked to specify a religion. They have no religion. That was in 1990. Last year, 2008, 15% said they had no religion. This is the world we live in. It's increasingly uh, less religious. But Paul is saying here, talking about the times in which he lived, there is none who seeks after God. They've all gone out of the way. They've become unprofitable. But notice Paul is quoting the Psalms. David made a similar observation in his day. Psalm 14, let's turn back there. You know, what most people do today on Sunday or Saturday, they go shopping, they go to the movies, they go to football games, they go to basketball games, they go to parties, whatever. It's not a sacred day anymore. 
It's not anything special. But notice what David was saying. He's talking about the folly of godlessness. In verse 1 of Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And one of these guys that writes these books in the UK basically said, there's no God. You believe in God, you're stupid. You're crazy. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that does good. This is what David was quoting. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have uh, together become corrupt. There is none who does good. Now, this is a general statement. You know, there are people in society who believe in God. There are people in society who do good. But he's drawing a general conclusion. And that is what the pollsters are drawing today. They're seeing the same trends moving in those directions. So how do we seek God? What do we do when we seek God? What are the benefits? Is it worth it? You know, some of these atheists say, it's not worth it. God doesn't hear your prayers. It's a waste of time. Let's go back to Deuteronomy again, and we'll see this theme that again runs through the Scriptures. God doesn't change. These things are extremely important. They were important in ancient Israel, they were important before God even developed the nation of Israel, and they're important today. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Again, Moses was talking with the descendants of the Israelites that came out of Egypt that apparently didn't learn some of the lessons they should have learned watching the mistakes that their parents made. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23, start there. Now, this was the admonitions that Moses was giving to these people. He says, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant the Lord your God made with you. Now, that covenant you can read about in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where God said, If you obey me, you are going to be blessed, and I'm going to set you on high above the nations of the world. But if you turn your back on me, if you despise my laws... If you turn away from me, there will be consequences. This was the covenant that was made. The covenant is agreement that has, has conditions on it. You obey, you're going to be blessed. You tell your kids the same thing. If you don't want to get a spanking, then behave. <laughs> and if you don't behave, then there will be consequences. It's not because we uh, you know, want to uh, abuse our children, which some liberal minds think is abuse today, which could be if it's not done you know, carefully. But, uh, you know, when, when little kids learn that there are consequences when you do things wrong, that lesson will stay with them. I mentioned this before, that I visited a guy in prison in one particular part of the country, and he would call every time he got in jail. And we get out of jail, he, he would forget to call <laughs> But I asked him one time, I said, why are you here? I've gone from one prison to another to another. He said, I never learned to respect authority. I never learned to respect authority. If I felt like doing something, I did it. I wanted to punch somebody in the mouth, I punched them in the mouth. If I wanted to break a law, I broke it. He said, I never learned to respect authority. And this is part of our job as parents, to teach our children there is authority that we have to respect. 
there is authority that we have to respect. And we have to do that lovingly, but it's a lesson that's extremely important to learn. So Moses warned these people, take heed, don't forget the covenant that I made with you. Uh, verse 27, he says, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples if, if you turn your back on me. But notice the positive aspect over here in verse 29. He says, you, you, you break my laws, you're going to go into captivity, you're going to be scattered. But in verse 29, he says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. He said, you'll find God if you seek him, if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. We're going to talk about how to do that. But God says, you know, seek me and you will find me. David is called a man after God's own heart. Why is he called that? It could be a number of reasons. Let's look at one in Psalm 63. In Psalm 63. And verse 1, he says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. Early in the morning, first thing that you do when you get out of bed, you're on your knees to talk with God. Early in your life, the sooner you begin seeking God as an individual, the more blessed you're going to be. You know, if you wait until you're 75 years old to seek God, you'll probably have made an awful lot of mistakes through life. But if you seek God early as a child, your life is going to be very different. But David is setting us an example here. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. I want to do things right in God's sight. I want to do things God's way. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So David sought God, and he said to seek God early. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He warned the nation of Israel before it went into captivity because of the direction it was going. God's hope in sending the prophets both to Israel and Judah and even to modern Israel today, is that we would hear and that we would heed and that we would change the course and, and direction in which we're going. But God always holds out hope, but eventually comes to the point where, sorry, don't even pray for these people, as he says in Jeremiah. They've had it. They've had their opportunity. They've not listened. They're going to have to learn the hard way. But if they repent, then they're going to be restored. And that is the message that runs through both the major and minor prophets. But notice here this message of hope in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You know, the Bible defines righteousness. In Psalm 119, verse 172, is all thy commandments are righteousness. So if we're seeking God and seeking to be righteous, we're going to be striving to live by the commandments of God. And he will let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. You know, right now, the truth of God is being broadcast all over the world. 
there are opportunities to find the truth of God today. But Amos talks about, in chapter 8, verse 11, there is coming a famine of the word. There is a time coming when the gospel is not going to be freely available. Let's look at that quickly. Amos, chapter 5. So this is a prophetic statement that Amos was making. Amos chapter 5. No, it's chapter 8, verse 11. I'm sorry. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God. I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. The time is going to come. When the truth of God is not allowed to be broadcast anymore, it's going to be cut off for whatever reason. Probably a power in Europe that rises, and it may be cut off over there first, depending on how it breaches over here. But a famine of the hearing of the words, and notice what it says here, they shall wander from sea to sea. They shall flip from channel to channel. <laughs> They will go from church to church and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. This is what's coming. This is what's coming. And so we have an opportunity now. And and all the pulls in this society, well, I've got to run here and run there and do this and do that. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to do that. That's going to catch a lot of people at some point in time. We've got thousands of people that have drifted away from the church. We're getting hundreds that are coming back. And they're finding this is wonderful. This is where I belong. This is what I've been missing. But what's going to happen if we're not here? This is the real left behind scenario. It's going to be very sobering. You know, our boys, when they were little, my wife and I went out shopping. We were supposed to be back home when they got home from school. We got caught in a traffic jam somewhere, and we didn't have cell phones at that time. And we got home, and we had two little boys sitting on the front porch crying their eyes out because they thought they had been left behind. They had heard the sermons, and they were devastated. But fortunately, Mom and Dad rolled in the driveway (laughs) before dinner, And uh, it was very uh, relieving to them. But the time is coming, as Amos talks about, when people are going to search. I I heard that. I remember hearing that. I remember that they were talking about what was happening today. Now, where did that go? And it's going to be sobering. So we have got to seek the Lord while he may be found. And that's while you're alive. You know, when you're six feet under, you don't do any searching. There's no thought in the grave. And while you're alive is your opportunity. We don't want to ever take advantage or lose that opportunity. In uh, Colossians 3.1, Colossians chapter 3. So again, this concept of seeking God is, is not just in the Old Testament. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, If then you were raised with Christ, in other words, you were baptized, you come up out of that water, seek those things which are above. You focus on spiritual things. You focus on the most important things in life. Jesus said in uh, Matthew six thirty three, Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, not Social Security, not uh, you know, this wonder job, not this big car, not this wonderful house, not the ideal job. He said, Seek first the kingdom of God. You develop the character that God can use in you to turn this world right side up. Understand the laws of God so you can teach the laws of God to a world that is forgotten and despises the laws of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's got to be the most important thing in our life. And this is what Paul is talking about. Seek those things which are above, developing the character and the mind of God. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. I saw this beautiful whatever, (laughs) guy, girl, car, house, whatever. I just got to have it. Well, our priority is in the wrong place. Our priority is in the wrong place. I remember when I was in graduate school, I set my goal on becoming a medical doctor and being a teacher in a medical school and making a big salary. And then I came in contact with the truth of God. And, and everything changed. Everything changed. I began to focus in a different direction. The man that I was working for in graduate school, I went home for a summer, what he thought was a vacation, and I thought was a vacation, ran into my brother. He'd had a year in brick at wood, came back, and we had a little bit of a talk. I came back to school, and my boss says, What happened to you? <laughs> what happened to you? You were on fire to go in a certain direction, and now you're, the fire's out, at least in that direction. You know, we've got to seek first the kingdom of God, not physical things on this earth. But if we seek the right goals, then God will even bless us in physical ways, as Mr. Tyler was talking about. Once we get our priorities right and focus in the right direction, hang on. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. But it's also going to be rewarding in many ways. Set your mind on things above, not on things on this earth. And down in verse 8, he says, But now, that is, once you have dedicated your life to God, but now you must also put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth, do not lie one to another, since you have put off the old man and his deeds, or the old woman, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So these are things that Paul was urging the New Testament church, New Testament Christians to do. Put off this old way of life and focus on this better way of life. Put off these sins. Again, why should we seek God? What's in it for you? Why should you change your life? Why should you focus on the kingdom of God as opposed to things on this earth? You know, we read, and you might want to go back and read it again, the scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You know, 
walk in the laws of God because you're going to have a long, profitable life. There are going to be benefits. There are going to be benefits. We read in Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, is basically to be envied. To be envied is the person who walks in the law of God. You're going to be blessed. Things are going to work better. One scripture just to notice in passing this way. Go to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9. Excuse me, 16 and verse 7. Proverbs 16 and verse 7. It says here, When a man's ways please God, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. When a person's ways please God, God will make even your enemies be at peace with you. When a woman's ways please God, even the girlfriends that give you a bad time <laughs> will be at peace with you. I mean, this is a blessing of learning to do things God's way. Why would we want to please God? Because things are going to be better that way. Now, you can do your own thing and rationalize it in your own mind. But if things get difficult, then don't blame God. See, we all have choices to make. So we seek God for reasons, because we want to be blessed, we want our life to be better, and then we can share those lessons with others. So seeking God is extremely important, and yet in the world today, many people don't think it's worth seeking God. But if we're seeking God with all our heart, you know, praying our hearts out, taking time for that, doing the other things, these are things we can't afford not to do. Second point. Talk with God. Make time to talk with God on a regular basis. You know, we have the account in the New Testament of Mary and Martha. And Martha was getting on her sister. Jesus, look, I'm doing all the cooking and I'm running around here like crazy and I'm trying to serve all of you, but Mary's sitting down just talking to you. <laughs> and Jesus said, Mary has chosen the important things. I'm not going to be with you forever. See, Mary was focused on the kingdom of God. It's not wrong to serve, but we need to have a right balance in these things. Praying to God, David mentioned in Psalm 5. Let's go there quickly, a couple of scriptures. When we understand the instructions we find in the Old Testament, we'll understand why Jesus did what he did and why he gave the instructions that he did. Psalm 5, verse 13 I think I got the wrong scripture. How about three? <laughs> Psalm 5, verse 3. Let's start in verse 1. It says, Give ear to my words. David's talking with God. God, hear me. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditations. Consider my concerns. Uh, give heed to the voice of my cry, my King, my God. For, I, for to you I will pray. My voice shall, you shall hear in the morning. O oh Lord, you're going to hear me in the morning. First thing when I get up, you're going to hear my voice. Psalm 55. Psalm 55, verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> As for me, David says, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening 
morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. David prayed three times a day, took time for that. I remember when I was teaching years ago in in Pasadena, when I would walk down the hill from the uh, building where I had an office towards the cafeteria. I would walk by a guy who worked in the uh, landscaping department. He would be eating his lunch in his pickup truck and reading his Bible. That was his lunch. That was what he did at lunchtime. Ate his lunch, read his Bible, and I'm sure he probably prayed at that time. David prayed three times a day. Daniel did the same thing, Daniel 6, verse 10. In fact, he was so regular that they laid a trap for him because <laughs> they knew where he'd be at a certain point in time. They had passed a decree. They couldn't you know, make a request or pray to anybody for a period of time. They knew what Daniel was going to do. So they waited till say, noontime, went up, barge in. There's Daniel on his knees making a request of another God. He wasn't phased by legislation, so to speak, that was passed at that time. You might want to read through Daniel 9 and Daniel 10, where Daniel sought God, prayed and fasted, wanted to know what the story was on this uh, 70-year captivity, how it was all going to work out. And God said, I've heard your prayers, and I've sent an angel to tell you how it's going to work out. In Daniel chapter 10, he prayed and fasted again. He wanted to know what the future was going to hold. And God sent an angel and said, I'm going to reveal to you what is going to take place in the latter days. And I heard you from the very first time you began to pray. (laughs) And yet you were on your knees for three weeks. God rewards those that pray with all their heart. And he will guide and direct them. You know, Jesus prayed, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, very early in the morning. This was his habit. Why did he do that? It's what David did. It's what Daniel did. And Jesus merely followed those instructions the night before he uh, appointed his disciples. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, he prayed all night. Father, the men that I'm choosing are going to lay the foundation of the New Testament church. And he probably talked over with God, all 12 of them. You know, they have this quality and they have that quality. You know, Peter's pretty impetuous and some of the others do this and some of the others do that. But God, we're laying the foundation for your church that is going to continue down through the ages. These are extremely important decisions that we have to make. But he said he prayed all night. His disciples noticed Jesus praying in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. And they asked him, Jesus, teach us to pray. Let's notice in Luke chapter 11. You know, what's your secret? Uh, How do you do this? Because we notice that after you pray, you go out and heal people. After you pray, things happen. What do you do? How do you do these things? Luke chapter 11, verse 1, came to pass as he was praying, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And then he goes through a model prayer. Again, in churches I grew up in, and some of you did, we we just say this verbatim. 
And yet this is a model. After this manner, our Father in heaven, God is our Father. He dwells in heaven. He's a powerful spirit being. Not just, hey, God, uh, I'm here. I want to talk to you. You you don't approach the President of the United States that way. Mr. President, you you show respect. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. Help me never to take that for granted or to take it in vain. Your kingdom come. God, I'm looking forward to your coming kingdom, your coming government to straighten out the mess that's on this earth. I'm looking forward to the time when your will will be done. When the world changes. When it will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God, give us this day our daily bread. So before we make our request to God, we address him. We talk about what are his concerns. Then we talk about ours. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And we've got to be willing to forgive others. Lead us not into temptation. God doesn't lead us into temptation, but Satan does. And we've got to be able to recognize when Satan is playing with our mind and getting us to do things that we might think is okay. Deliver us from evil. In Matthew 6, there are several other words added towards the end of that. But Jesus gave a model prayer. You know, Paul mentions 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing. It was a chapstick commercial that said, don't go out without it. You know, otherwise, you're going to get chapped lips. Well, don't go out without praying. Don't go out without praying in the morning. Make sure that that's the first thing that you do. And you can do this when you make time to do these things. Point number three. Regularly study the Bible. Regularly study the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, that we've got to live by every word of God. But if you don't know what's in the book, you can't live by every word of God. And the studies that have been done for the last probably 15 or 20 years, that most Americans are biblically illiterate. Now, these are studies. This is not my opinion. Now, many people, even in Christian churches, can't name the four Gospels. They can't name the Ten Commandments, and I imagine a number of us would flunk it too if we did a quiz here this afternoon. We might get most of them, but we ought to be able to get all of them. Many people in the world, they have no idea what is in the Scriptures. I mentioned before we had visits with people, and they said, what's this tithe that the Bible talks about? You can't even pronounce the words today. But we've got to be studying the Word of God. Interesting example here in Acts chapter 8 of the benefits of studying the Word of God. <clears throat> Philip was guided by God's Spirit to head towards Gaza, the city on the Mediterranean coast over there. In Acts chapter 8, verse 27, it says, So he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopia who had charge over all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he was a person who came to Jerusalem to worship and actually believed in God. He was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. He was reading a scroll about the, uh, the book of Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go near to him. So he walked over and he said, Philip says to the man, he says, do you understand what you're reading? He didn't say, well, here's my opinion of what I'm reading. <laughs> He said, how can I understand unless someone guides me and shows me? 
what it all means. And then Philip begins to explain. He was talking about uh, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and he said, what does that mean? And he began explaining, Jesus Christ came to die for our sins, just like this lamb was slaughtered. Jesus Christ was slaughtered. So if we understand what the Scriptures say, then we can help others understand what the Scriptures say. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And then this gets into our calling, our purpose in in life. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Now Paul is giving Timothy guidelines here for conducting congregations and helping people grow. Verse 14, he says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord. Don't argue about words that have no profit. Don't get into arguments that just go around and round and round and round in circles. To the ruin of the hearers, be diligent. The old King James says, Study to present yourselves approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Being able to correctly explain it. But avoid profane and vain babblings, because they will just increase. And he mentions some people's names who were creating problems. Verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they only generate strife. A servant of the Lord must be, not quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach patience, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. And Satan certainly puts a lot of snares out there for people to fall into today. So we need to be studying the Scripture so that we can explain the truth of God. But you know there's another reason for studying the Scriptures besides being able to explain it to others. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Second Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. As we get older, our hair falls out, our teeth fall out, <laughs> various things happen to us. Uh, the outward man perishes, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Part of our responsibility is to renew that inward man, that inward woman by studying the scriptures, allowing those scriptures to go through our minds, as opposed to television commercials and advertisements and and novels and everything else that we fill up our minds with. We have got to be running the scriptures through our minds on a regular basis, or we get off in left field. And we've got to take time to do that. You know, asking what are God's instructions about this or that? How should I walk with my life? What direction should I go? How would Jesus Christ handle a situation? We, we mull these things over, and this leads into our next point, number four. To meditate. To think about how to apply the laws of God. I've got this problem I'm, de- I'm dealing with. What does God say about it? What are the principles here that I can follow or that should follow? But we need to take time to meditate on these things. Notice in Matthew 13, a parable that Jesus Christ spoke, which really fits the world in which we live in today every much as as it did in the day when he was alive. The parable of the sower. 
This describes several groups of people. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. And this is he who received the uh, seed by the wayside. As somebody might hear the broadcast, come across the magazine, and the phone rings, and they put it down, and, uh, and they forget. You know, a friend of mine was in a hospital. Somebody sent him a Plain Truth magazine years ago. He said, that was pretty good. But when I got out of the hospital, I got busy and forgot all about it. That's how Satan operates one way. Verse 20, But he who received the seed in stony places is he who hears the word and is excited about it. Wow, this makes sense. This is really cool. <laughs> this, is, this is really good. Yet he has no root in himself. And I mentioned before, you know, we need to take time to prove what it is that we believe. You know, who changed the Sabbath? When was it changed? Why was it changed? Things like that. We need to understand these things. We need to prove it so that you have roots. When I heard someone, when we heard a sermon down at Big Sandy and somebody said, you know, we're, we're going to throw out all these old, old Testament guidelines. We're changing everything. We're going to go where angels fear to tread. Whoa. <laughs> and there were people that went out that night and ordered shrimp and lobster. And the comment was, well, they said we could do it. They said we could do it. There was no roots there. There were no roots. We've got to have roots. You've got to know where it is, you know, what it is that you believe and why. Yet he has no root, but endures for only a while. And when tribulation or persecution comes... Somebody laughs at what you're doing. You still follow those Old Testament guidelines? We have refrigerators today. <laughs> or whatever. See, somebody makes fun of your beliefs? Well, I, 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 I wouldn't do that anymore. I don't want to be embarrassed. When tribulation, persecution arises because of the word, what it is that you believe, immediately he stumbles. That's another group of people. A third group of people. Now, he who received the seed among thorns is he who hears the word and apparently believes it, and then the cares of this world. Well, I'm so busy. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You know, Dr. Meredith has cautioned all of us working here at, at Charlotte. Don't let administrative duties you know, keep you from drawing close to God. And I think for those of us here and those of you that have jobs that you're working at, You've got to take time to pray. You've got to take time to study. I have to. You have to. Otherwise, these pressing administrative matters or business matters or family matters or kitchen matters or kid matters or whatever will interfere. You know, and as husbands and wives with little kids, you know, you need to spell each other off. Well, it's my wife's job to take the, the child out when he cries. Well, does she always have to be the one that misses services? Or can you take turns with that? Can you take turns watching the kids at home when they're little to give each other time to pray and time to do things? You know, it's working together that way. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, I've got to make my pills, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, can choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But there's a fourth group. He who received the word or the seed, he or she that receives the seed on good ground. 
I want to learn. I want to change. I want to grow. You teach me more. Help me understand. He who hears the word and understands it, he who bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. We're all going to bear different kinds of fruit. But these are the opportunities, and we need to take time. I've encouraged people at the feast, especially whenever you're at the ocean or up in the mountains. <laughs> Go sit by the beach for an hour and ask yourself, how can I be different when I go home? What changes can I make in this coming year where I can be a more effective instrument in God's hands? Or by a mountain stream someplace. Or just go look at a tree in the backyard. <laughs> but get in touch with God's creation and take time to think. Take time to think, where am I going? Why am I doing things that I'm doing? What do I need to change? How can I become a more effective instrument in God's hands? Think about these things. Think about your calling. Think about your calling. John 6, and 66. Jesus says, no man, no person can come to me unless I call them. Unless I actually begin to reach into their mind, turn the dial so they can see the big picture. You know, Jesus told his disciples, we're here in Matthew 13. Let's just notice what he said here in verse 11, verse 10. Jesus' disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. God is going to call everyone in his time and in his way, but he's not calling everyone now. You know, I grew up in another church and never heard much about the kingdom of God. It was this warm feeling in your heart. Then I came in contact with the church of God and they were preaching about Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and set up a government, a kingdom on this earth. And the laws of God are going to go out from Jerusalem. The world is going to change. And that was exciting. That was something I could sink my teeth into. And had no comparison to becoming a medical doctor. <laughs> I wanted to fix the world. I remember running into a lady one time in church in Pittsburgh. And I gave a sermon on the kingdom of God. And I talked with her lady. And she said, that's why I'm in this church. I want to change the world. <laughs> this little 85-year-old woman. <laughs> but she saw the big picture. And she was excited about that. And she was seeking first the kingdom of God. And we need to be excited that way. But we need to think about this. God is not calling everyone now. He will deal with everyone later. But he's calling a few, as Jesus said, has been given to you, not everybody else. You know, using very big figures. There may be maybe 30,000 people in churches of God around the world. And I think you represent, just using those figures, compared to 6 billion people, even if we say there's 60,000 people, I think the figures work out to be one in a million. That God has called you, opened your mind. And we had a German professor in college, he used to tell us young college guys on Friday afternoon, don't take it easy! And I would tell you, don't take for granted 
what God has opened your mind to understand. Doesn't make us better than anybody else. Really, it's a big responsibility to be called now and given an opportunity to develop the mind of God, the perspective of God. So meditate on these things. For the fifth and final point, <clears throat> strive to obey God, to keep his commandments, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, talking with his disciples the night before he was crucified, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Matthew 19, this rich young ruler comes to him. What commandments do I have to keep if I want to inherit eternal life? He says, the Ten Commandments. Go back to those. You start there. In Matthew 4, Jesus said, follow me. Follow in my footsteps. Do what I do. Do it the way I do it. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath. He kept the holy days. He followed the dietary laws because God created certain things to be eaten and other things were not to be eaten. Paul kept the Sabbath as his custom was. 20, 30 years after the crucifixion, Acts 17, 2. Paul kept the holy days. The early church kept the Sabbath and the holy days. And these things were gradually jettisoned down through history. But Jesus also said something else in John 13. Not only did he set an example of keeping the Sabbath and keeping the holy days, he instructed his disciples on the night of the Passover. <clears throat> he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I, as I have loved you. Jesus Christ gave his life for people that he knew would kill him, would spit on him, would make fun of him, and yet he gave his life for people like that, for you, for me. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. For it's by this, not only keeping the Sabbath, not only keeping the holy days, which are signs, but here's another sign. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love, you have compassion, you care. For other people. And we have got to care for other people and learn how to show love for other people. You know, we're dealing in a world today, if we notice in First John chapter two. <clears throat> Actually let's go to first John five. Which describes some of the challenges that people face in the world today. In 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, it says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You know, the commandments of God are not a burden and yet people are being told today in many cases 
You know, those commandments are a burden. You know, they, they just keep you from really enjoying life. I remember kidding with our boys one time when they were growing up. I said, why don't we do an experiment this year just for once? Let's keep Christmas instead of keeping the feast. And they looked at me. They said, Dad, Christmas is one day. The feast is eight days. You lose, Dad. You lose. You know, the feast is not a burden. The feast is the highlight of the year. Not only physically to go and stay in a wonderful place, but to hear sermons and stay focused on the coming kingdom of God, what it's going to be like, what our goal is in the future, and what we can do to prepare for that, and to strive and function and and also administer the government of God in a loving way, where we're thinking about others and not ourselves. But we're living in a world that makes fun of the commandments of God. As Mr. Tyler mentioned in the sermon, he told this guy, work hard. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever you find to do, do it with all your might. He did it. And his salary kept climbing. (laughs) And opportunities came. The laws of God really work. They're not a burden. They're a blessing. If you go back and read Hosea chapter 8, and Hosea was warning the nation of Israel. He said, you are going to have big problems because you have forgotten your maker. You've despised my laws, turned your back on my instructions, and you view my law as strange. This is the world we live in today. You follow those Old Testament Jewish dietary laws? Now, the people that don't understand those laws consume high-fat diets because the Bible says don't eat fat. High-fat diets are linked with heart disease, strokes, cancer, and other things. You eat crabs, crayfish, lobsters, and so on. You're going to wind up with some parasitic diseases sooner or later. Populations that do consume large amounts of those things have some of the highest rates in the world. You have clams and oysters that sit in estuaries and go... (laughs) and suck up everything that comes along, bacteria, viruses. Even in Boston, where they had uh, oyster beds, they close the beds. They can't pick up the oysters if there's a big storm and all the sewers overflow. (laughs) So they, they say you can't get oysters for the next week or so until they kind of cleanse themselves. You know, so up there they have these oyster bars where you pop a raw oyster and then chase it down with some alcohol to kill anything that might be in your throat. <laughs> <laughs> but this is really living. I mean, this is, this is, this is what life is all about. <laughs> you know, our, our perspectives are so warped today. Uh, because people have basically forgotten the laws of God, and they believe these ideas that are floating around, that, well, if you follow those things, you're old-fashioned, you know, you're, you're out of date. You know, let's conclude very quickly here. What is God actually looking for? In Isaiah 66, verse 2, it says, God is looking for those who are poor, contrite of heart, and tremble at my word. The word poor means, you know, all of us fit that category. <laughs> It really means a person that's teachable. God is looking for those that are teachable, that are contrite, they're willing to repent, willing to say, look, I messed up, I I made a mistake, I didn't understand what I thought I understood, whatever. And that they tremble at my word. They're not trying to manipulate it, but they tremble at it. 
In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, let me just jot these down, spend some time later. It says, God is looking for those who want to do justly, who love mercy, and who are willing to walk humbly before their God. I just want to do it God's ways. I'm not going to argue with it. That's the way I'm going to do it. Let's conclude with the final scripture in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Is it worth it? Why should I walk with God? What is the benefit going to be to you, to me, to others? In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another. You can do that when you're services, when you're fellowshipping with other people that believe as you do. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened. The Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make up my jewels. God is molding and fashioning character in each one of us. He's preparing a group of people to reign with Jesus Christ, not to get wet, but to rule with Jesus Christ. Then you shall again discern between the righteous. Again, Psalm 119, verse 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. Between those who are striving to live by the commandments of God and the wicked, God is going to discern between the two. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Brethren, if we take the time and make the effort to seek God, to pray with all of our heart, to fast, to show God that we are really earnest, to meditate on the laws of God and appreciate our calling, and we strive to obey God, God is going to come back and gather his jewels to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. Let's walk with God.